Trailing in the polls and fundraising, Charlie Crist needed a boost from his one and only debate with Ron DeSantis. We need to have a governor who will do what's right for the people of Florida all the time, all year long, not just when it's right before a re-election. Governor. Crist was confrontational and the crowd was raucous, but was it a game changer? This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matthew Petty. Ahead this hour, takeaways from the debate as DeSantis and Chris make their case to the voters, plus the Florida Department of Education's book vetting process under fire and the return of SpaceX's mighty Falcon Heavy rocket. You can join the conversation 305-995-1800 here on the Florida Roundup with your calls right after this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. An investigation is underway into a break-in at the San Francisco home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, whose husband was attacked by an intruder. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has details. Pelosi's spokesman, Drew Hamill, says an assailant broke in and, quote, violently assaulted Paul Pelosi early this morning. The person is in custody and police are investigating the motivation of the attack. Mr. Pelosi, who is 82, was taken to the hospital and is expected to make a full recovery. Hamill says the speaker is grateful for the first responders and requests privacy. She was not in San Francisco at the time of the attack. The speaker has been traveling, raising money and campaigning for Democratic candidates in her party's effort to keep control of the House in the midterm elections. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Twitter is being delisted from the New York Stock Exchange after Elon Musk finalized a $44 billion deal to buy the social media company. The Tesla CEO has fired several executives who are expected to receive a combined payout of more than $100 million to exit. The deal follows months of legal wrangling between Musk and Twitter. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia has fired more than 4,500 missiles against his country since the invasion eight months ago. NPR's Nathan Rott reports many in recent weeks have targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Russia's renewed countrywide assault on Ukraine has involved cruise missiles, artillery in some areas, and self-destructing Shahed drones. Zelensky stood over the wreckage of one of those drones in his address to the Ukrainian people. The aggressor continues his terror, he said. We are again attacked from the sky by a flock of their crows. More than 30 drones were launched into our skies in the last two days. Russia's drone attacks have largely been directed at Ukraine's energy and heating infrastructure in the lead up to the coming winter, prompting international worries of a major humanitarian disaster when temperatures in the country dip. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Game one of Major League Baseball's World Series is tonight in Houston, where the Astros host the Philadelphia Phillies. NPR's Dave Mistich says ahead of the first pitch, Houston's manager is expressing some disappointment about the makeup of this year's World Series rosters. Barring some unexpected changes in the Astros or Phillies rosters, this year's Fall Classic will be the first time since 1950 that an American-born black player won't be on the field for a World Series. Astros manager Dusty Baker, who is black, said it's a sad development, but offered hope that black representation in the game will turn around. NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 616 points, 1.9 percent. This is NPR News.
Gang-related violence in the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, is driving residents from their homes. The United Nations International Organization for Migration finds nearly 100,000 people have fled the capital where gang members have carried out brutal attacks on children, women, and men. Last month, one of Haiti's most powerful gangs seized control of a key fuel terminal, which cut off fuel supplies to the general public. Some residents in Shanghai, China, are back under lockdown temporarily because of an uptick in COVID-19 cases. Mass testing is underway. NPR's John Ruwich reports officials are asking residents to stay home until they get their test results. China continues to take no chances with the coronavirus. Shanghai, with a population of roughly 26 million, reported 11 new asymptomatic cases on Thursday. Still, the authorities decided that the 1.3 million people in the Yangpu district, where some of the cases have been, all needed to be tested. And they've been ordered to stay home until they get their results. China has stuck by its tough, dynamic zero-COVID policy, even as most other countries have moved on from strict controls. The policy is closely associated with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who was given another five-year term as leader at a Communist Party Congress last week. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This hour, U.S. stocks are trading higher with the NASDAQ Composite Index up 1.6% or 176 points at 10,969. The S&P has risen 1.5%, 58 points, and the Dow is up 1.8% or 583 points. It's NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis and U.S. Representative Charlie Chris squared off in their one and only debate in front of a rowdy audience in Fort Pierce on Monday. DeSantis leads by a wide margin in the latest polls, and his campaign has a huge cash advantage over his challenger. Chris desperately needed a boost from the debate, but just how much of a difference can it make with Election Day less than two weeks away? Yeah, early voting is underway already, Matthew. Now the two candidates sparred on culture war issues, the economy, immigration, and on the big question of DeSantis' ambitions for higher office. The governor dodged that question. You're running for governor. Why don't you look in the eyes of the people of the state of Florida and say to them, if you're reelected, you will serve a full four-year term as governor. Yes or no? <laughs> Yes or no, Ron? Will you serve a full four-year term if you're re-elected governor of Florida? It's not a tough question. It's a fair question. He won't tell you. We did not agree on the candidates asking each other questions. Governor, it's your turn. Well, listen, I know that Charlie's interested in talking about 2024 and Joe Biden, but I just want to make things very, very clear. The only worn-out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Chris. And on and on it went all night with the candidates trading barbs like that. The governor calling Chris a worn-out donkey. Chris said DeSantis was arrogant and a bully. 
Time and again, Chris tried to bring the debate back to the topic of abortion. He accused DeSantis of thinking he knows better than any doctor or woman making decisions about their personal health. I don't want to ban abortion. I want to make sure we keep a woman's right to choose available to the women of the state of Florida. And I want to make sure that we don't have a governor in the future who wouldn't even allow exceptions for rape or incest. And on that topic, DeSantis proudly stood by the state's recently passed law that prohibits abortions after 15 weeks. I understand not everyone's going to be born in perfect circumstances, but I would like to see everybody have a shot. I'm proud of the 15 weeks that we did. I know Charlie Crist opposes that, even though the baby is fully formed, has a heartbeat, can feel pain and can suck their thumb. Well, did you watch the debate? Has it changed your mind about the race at all? Call or tweet us. We're at 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Live across the state right now, as early voting is already underway, Election Day, November 8th. For more, we're joined by Sergio Bustos. He oversees political coverage for 18 USA Today Gannett newsrooms across Florida. Hey, Sergio. Good morning. Oh, good afternoon. Good to, yeah, really, it is afternoon now. Good to have you on the show. So as we noted, DeSantis has really outspent Crist. At the start of the month, the governor had around 21 times more cash on hand than his opponent. Charlie Crist is also trailing in the polls. How important was this debate for Charlie Crist? You know, as debates go, I think Crist probably helped himself, at least with his base, um, but, you know, debates don't necessarily uh, sway an election one way or the other. I think the two things you mentioned just now were mainly the uh, spending, the ad spending is 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 more crucial. And unfortunately, there for Charlie Crist, he's way down. Uh, he just wasn't able to break in enough money to really run this race. The governor is widely seen as laying the groundwork for a presidential yeah. run in two years he dodged the question from Chris about whether he would stay in Tallahassee in the governor's mansion for four years if he's reelected. Is that something, though, that DeSantis's supporters are concerned about? I, I doubt it. Um, you know, I don't know of any politician who would uh, say two years out that they were going to run for president. Um, you know, not even President, uh, former President Trump has uh, indicated what he plans to do. And there's a long way off until 2024. Uh, you know, President Biden himself hasn't said exactly what he's going to do. Uh, I, you know, I know he, uh, Chris got a lot of traction with that, uh, with that remark, and I think it was smarter on his part, but I, I don't think it would have swayed or turned off any of DeSantis' supporters. Now, of course, Chris also tried to make the debate a referendum on abortion. He called the state's recent 15-week ban on the procedure callous. Other anti-abortion groups are pushing for even further restrictions on abortion in Florida. The governor stood by that 15-week ban. Let's talk about abortion for a minute, Sergio. Florida is an outlier among southeastern states in that it has long had relatively open access to the procedure. That could change next year. How is this issue affecting the vote, if at all, in Florida? This is an interesting one um, because I think when Roe v. Wade came down in June, it 
really triggered a, a, you know, a national outcry. And it sent those folks who may not have been registered to vote uh, to, to their elections offices or mailing in their registration cards. But in, in, the, in the ensuing months, what's happened is the economy, inflation has kind of, again, overridden that one concern. I, I'm not going to try to say that it's not going to be an issue for some voters, if not many voters. But remember, there's two sides to this. And there are lots of conservative voters who also want to keep this uh, the way it is or restrict abortion even more. So I think it, it, it that may, you know, they may have outweighed it. Um, but at the end of the day, inflation, the economy seems to be at the top of every poll I've seen nationwide and here in Florida. Mm-hmm. Sure. And how did you feel the candidates frame their views on economic issues? Of course, we have an affordability housing crisis in Florida. We have a problem with homeowners insurance in Florida. These are real pocketbook issues for Florida voters. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question you bring up because uh, Chris actually had to handle the same things when he was governor uh, back beginning in, um, you know, early, and during his first term. But, you know, I think it's one of these things that's so hard for these uh, governors to try to get their hands around because everything they try to do gets overtaken by events. Look at look at Hurricane Ian. There's no doubt that Hurricane Ian is going to send our insurance premiums even higher beginning next year. Um, I think there's talk already. They'll have to re-energize or restart the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund. It's almost like a surcharge on every uh, insurance uh, account in the state. I, I don't think some of these issues of economic issues almost beyond uh, the realm of government in times. Uh, I don't know how you control home prices. You know, they, 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 that, that's simply capitalism working, you know, or not working for many people. But what about some Florida cities trying to institute, you know, efforts at rent control for people who are struggling? You, you, we are seeing that in some parts of Florida. Yeah, I mean, rent control, if you're going to try to do it locally, um, you're going to get a lawsuit from either landlords or even the state of Florida because they're going to come in and try to say that's, uh, that's illegal. Um, I, I think it'd be a tough sell. Um, but again, all these problems have been around for so long, but they don't seem to be addressed by either party. We'll go to your calls in a moment. We're live across the state here on the Florida Roundup. Who will get your vote for governor? The incumbent, Governor Ron DeSantis, or his challenger, Charlie Crist, who once served as governor himself. Get on the line now. Let us know what's on your mind this election season. 305-995-1800. Um, Let me ask you, too, Sergio, the governor has kept the issue of immigration in the headlines since he took the credit for flying migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in the Northeast last month. During the debate, Charlie Chris called it an inhumane stunt. How much is the immigration issue driving votes in Florida, do you think, right now? You know, I thought that when he um, tried this, that it would hurt him with some uh, Latino voters in the state who make up about 20, 20 percent of voters, a little less. Um, but it, the polls, this latest poll done uh, by Telemundo, the Spanish language TV network, showed that, in fact, uh, Latinos are pretty split. 
with uh, Cubans and Venezuelans, I guess, uh, seeing this is okay, and others opposed to it. It apparently hasn't hurt him as much as some might have thought, including myself. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Media. Send us your tweets at Florida Roundup. We want to hear what you think about the uh, governor's debate or the race in the gubernatorial election, uh, the debate in the gubernatorial election, I should say, between Governor Ron DeSantis and his challenger, Charlie Crist. We are having some people weigh in on Twitter. Uh, Bert Nerd tells us there should be more opportunities <laughs> to hear the candidates' debate. Also, the audience was out of control. Crist, for me, they note. Thanks for that uh, tweet. Somebody else writes in, the debate didn't change my opinion or my vote. I already voted by mail several, several weeks ago. Uh, Sergio, there's already more than 2 million Floridians who've cast a ballot. That's a pretty sizable chunk of the electorate. So the challenge, I think, for uh, somebody like Charlie Crist, this close to the election, a debate, even in this age we're in where debates maybe don't have as much sway as they did years ago, there's not a lot of time to turn things around, right? No, not really. Uh, You know, uh, there really is an election day in Florida, and I borrow the expression of many of my former colleagues saying, you know, it's election days in Florida, and it has already started. As you noted, more than 2 million have voted. Uh, I think what's interesting so far is that in 2018, um, you know, at this point, uh, well, heading into election day, Democrats had, had sent in more ballots than Republicans. This time around, it's a bad sign that Democrats are trailing Republicans in votes mm-hmm. cast um, by more than uh, 30,000. Uh, from what I can tell, the latest numbers. And the lead yeah. keeps growing. And, and again, mm-hmm. keep in mind that Democrats usually built a really good cushion of votes going into Election Day because of, of the rush of Republicans on Election Day. But if if Republicans are already outdistancing them in voting early, it could be a, a, a tough night for Democrats on Election Night. For sure. I mean, there's some other kind of things creating a bit of a headwind for Charlie Crist in this race. The hurricane probably didn't do him any favours. I mean, you had opportunities for the government to get out in front of the cameras, uh, some of the work to get things rebuilt, like the causeway to Sanibel Island. That is all good fodder for a governor who is running for re-election, right? So some things that Crist really couldn't uh, couldn't account for. No, I, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it was almost like a free ad for him. But again, he's doing his job, I guess, as, as governor to be out there. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that I think it's striking about Democrats is I, I wonder why they haven't gone into the areas where they lose, meaning mostly rural Florida counties, to try to close that margin. The reason I say that is because that's exactly what Republicans have done in the areas they typically lose big, which is the urban areas and and all the three big counties in South Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. Um, There are indications now that that, uh, DeSantis could win Miami-Dade County come Election Day, and that would be pretty remarkable given that uh, it's always been pretty reliably Democrat. Send us your tweets. We're at Florida Roundup. Uh, a couple of people weighing in here. Chris proves he proved he is the better person for governor. Writes uh, Deborah DeSantis is wrong for Florida. As for the speaker's assessment of abortion not being a motivation for Chris votes, it is. Inflation is temporary. Fascism, fascism is forever. And then Terry writes in, the issues that matter to me stand way ahead of the others. I want a repeal of the Stop Woke Act, the Don't Say Gay provision. I want to see our history taught accurately in terms of treatment 
of people of colour. Sergio, what did we hear on the culture war issues? Because that has been something that people have rallied around. It's been a very polarising issue leading into this election, but night of election, was there much airtime given to that? On on the debate night you're talking about? um, Yes. There wasn't as much. I I thought the debate was good in terms of the more substantive issues. Uh, again, I too have been surprised by DeSantis's um, cultural wars. I, I thought it would hurt him with, say, uh, folks that are no party affiliation voters or those on the fence about the election. But apparently it hasn't. Uh, some people have uh, come to side on it, and the polls also bear that out. But, you know, the ultimate poll will be on Election Day. What's interesting is that four, you know, four years ago, he only won in a, by, a, by a very small margin. In fact, it required a recount. But, you know, things are barreling forward uh, toward this election. And it appears he could be in for a, a, a landslide victory, which I think is unheard of in Florida, where we're just we're so accustomed to close elections. And, mm-hmm. and so to, to that, I say that because I don't think the culture war fights he's taken on has really hurt him that much. Let's get a call on the air. Eileen is calling in from St. Petersburg. Uh, Eileen, go ahead. Uh, yes, good morning. Thank you for ta- or good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, sure. I watched the debate, and um, there were a few things that were very annoying. I, I think the production was um, unsatisfactory in that the crowd was too distracting, and it was really not mm. very professional. But one of the points I would like to make, um, I don't care for either one of the candidates. I'm an independent voter. But one of the things about Ron DeSantis that really bothers me is that he seems to have, you know, a dual perspective. So on one hand, a double standard. On one hand, he supports parents being able to say, I don't want my child to get a COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. He supports that. And yet, when you have a parent who has a child who has gender issues, he doesn't support the parent being able to be involved in that. And I find Mm -hmm. that to be a very, very much a double standard. Um, Charlie, sadly, um, and during the debate, he he pushed too much on the abortion issue, which I, of course, support, um, but he pushed too much on it. He didn't give us answers on the other issues that he was being questioned mm. on, and that really um, bothered me. Um, lastly, I do want to um, say that I'm extremely offended by one of the ads that DeSantis has done where he and his wife are exploiting her breast cancer issue. Mm. I felt like that was very poor taste to praise him for doing what any good husband should do and to use that situation for political gain. So it gave me I, a really bad taste in my mouth for Ron DeSantis. Right. Eileen, thanks so much for, for weighing in and your, your thoughtful analysis there. Uh, real quick, Sergio, not, not NPA voters are a pretty big chunk. And then to the caller's point there, Eileen's point, there are some who are saying they really don't like maybe either candidate. So what does that tell you about this race and sort of where this uh, the state is heading? Well, first of all, I applaud her uh, due diligence. Uh, she touched on a lot of good points there. She clearly has been doing her homework and paying careful attention. I would encourage every voter to do that. Um, as far as um, how, you know, the, maybe the negativity you see, I always say the same thing. I've said it for years. If negative advertising didn't work, the campaigns wouldn't do it, but apparently mm-hmm. it does work, unfortunately, and um, it does kind of cloud uh, some of the substantive issues. 
but they do it because it works. It's effective. You know, they touch on emotions and that's what they're hoping to, to do with the, trying to reach some voters. Let's yeah, squeeze and- in. What, oh, sorry, Matthew. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, let's squeeze in Pam and Bradenton if we can. She's on the line. Go ahead, Pam. Hello. Go ahead. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm dismayed and have been for a number of years. I, I, uh, because of my age, I'm one of the voters. I vote all of the time, anytime I can. I like to vote on Election Day. And who'll um, get your vote? We're almost at it. We're almost to a break. Okay. Nobody is getting my four Nobody. <laughs> okay. I am voting against DeSantis. As I have been voting against candidates for a number of years now, I don't All right. find anyone who lives up to everything that I'm looking for. Thank you for that. And thank you, Sergio Bustos, for your analysis. Uh, whoever you vote for, folks, get out and vote. Early voting's underway now. Sergio, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, and still, still to come, come. A, whip, a whip group task <laughs> with ahead, classroom libraries draws criticism from freedom of speech organizations. That's when the Florida Roundup continues. Florida Public Media. Inflation has hit touring musicians, too, you know. Live shows is kind of the biggest thing, and... Um... It concerns me that it's so expensive to play a live show at the moment. I'm Kai Rizdal, the new reality for going on the road. Next time on Marketplace. Marketplace, that's today, starting at 6 p.m. We're funded by members and by Income Realty. Since 1978, Income Realty has bought, sold, and managed properties as professionals and fiduciaries for the owners. You can call 305-251-5561 or learn more at IncomeRealty.net. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Hi, I'm Michael Stock. This Sunday on Folk and Acoustic Music in the studio with Musiana, plus podcaster Henry Kay and reggae musician Wayne Norman. Public storytellers at 4 o'clock. Folk and Acoustic Music Sunday afternoon, starting at 2. Radio Lab on WLRN is brought to you in part by the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science in downtown Miami. Tune in every Saturday at 4 p.m. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for being with us. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, among the so-called culture war issues driving recent policy changes in Florida is a push to give parents more leeway to challenge books in school libraries and on classroom shelves. When he signed the K-12 education bill back in March, Governor DeSantis called it, quote, the strongest curriculum transparency legislation in the country. The bill prompted a backlash from teachers and civil liberties groups. Now there's more scrutiny into how the Florida Department of Education is vetting books. Yeah, now the department is developing an online training program for people who will select and maintain those school media collections. 
Back in August, Jacob Oliva, senior chancellor with the Department of Ed, asked district superintendents to nominate parents for a work group that's developing the training. An article published this week in the Daily Beast calls this working group a book-banning council and says the education department is staffing it with right-wing activists. We want to note we reached out to the Florida Department of Education for comment about the story and we'll read their response during this conversation. Give us a call. Are you concerned about efforts around not just Florida, but around the country to, if not outright ban books, at least restrict them from being read? What are your thoughts about book banning? Give us a call, 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Well, joining us is Michelle Jarrett, the president of the Florida Association for Media and Education, also joined by Jonathan Friedman, director of the Free Expression and Education programs at PEN America. Michelle, I want to start with you. Thanks for joining us. And let me ask, first of all, how are school media specialists dealing with the new rules around library books? What impact are these rules having on the way they work? So thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Um, the media specialists across the state are, you know, they're very nervous about uh, the future of their jobs. They're trying to do what's best for kids every day. But um, given the new legislation and the um, Board of Ed's decision that their certificates can be removed, um, if they make certain choices in the libraries. It's made them very apprehensive and um, has caused them to self-censor, I think, sometimes in the library books that they choose, or at least give them pause when they're putting books on their shelves, which mm -hmm. is a cause for concern because certainly um, it's making them question the books that they have and then making them question if they're serving all of the students on their campus. When you say their certificates could be removed, are you essentially saying that they just would be out of a job? They would. So the the law at this point and the decisions that are being made by the State Board of Education is that a par if a parent challenges some of the decisions that a media specialist makes, um, the state can then uh, remove or, or uh, hold a uh, the media specialist liable and then remove their certificate or mm -hmm. basically they are no longer certified in the state of Florida to teach. The thing is, I mean, library centers, media centers, they're, they're so vital to the life of a school, right? I mean, there's so much more than just reading that happens there, and, and librarians and media specialists are often like a conduit for information for kids who may learn differently or, you know, uh, just may have a different approach to things or, or just need more enrichment in their lives. So in general, what do you think these rules, what kind of effect are they, or impact are they going to have on the you know the work and maybe whether people want to go into into this work of being you know librarians and in, in school settings we're definitely seeing people leave the field if they're close to retirement uh, it's time for them to leave and they're saying i'm done um 
it, you know, our libraries are not only places that children come for self-selected reading, but they're places where kids use technology. They're safe spaces for students that don't want to be in other locations. There mm -hmm. are work groups that happen. There are study groups. There's so many things that happen in a school library that um, it's such a vital place on campus. And it's definitely the great equalizer. We hear a lot of, of rhetoric about uh, these books in libraries and let's just take, you know, parents can take the kids to the public library or parents can take the kids to the bookstore and buy books but that's mm -hmm. not what really can happen for a lot of Florida students because they don't have access in ways that a lot of these parents have these resources for their children a lot of the students or many of the students in the state of Florida don't have those resources and that's where the pub the school library comes in to equalize that for our students mm -hmm. um Let's get a call in here from Alice in Jacksonville. Uh, Alice, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, my feeling is if a parent does not want a child to read a specific book, let that parent tell that specific child not to read that specific book. And parents, all parents should stop trying to dictate to everybody else in the society. They're trying to do that with many, many things now not only in this area, but I'll just leave it at that. Alice, thanks for your call. Uh, Michelle, what about that? I mean, that's one side of the argument, but then you have other folks who are saying, look, I, I would like to know more about what is on library shelves. Uh, we had a, a, a listener tell us that it's important to know what the kids are being taught as a parent. And also there are folks who say, look, what's wrong with uh, having a little more transparency? Or there are parents who are worried about their children being exposed to inappropriate content in school library books. What, what do you say to those parents? Oh, I completely agree with you. Parental rights are completely so important, but where parental rights um, become a problem is when one parent's rights step on another parent's rights. So every parent has the right to decide what their children read, but they don't have the right to decide what other parents or other children read. Um, and I think there's this misnomer that that these that libraries have been places that we don't want parents to be or that parents haven't had rights in the past but every library or every school district has had a challenge policy in place that parents can be a part of there's this this belief or in this wrong belief that parents haven't been able to have a say in what what is in their in their classrooms and in their school libraries and that's just a complete falsehood because these policies have always been in place they've always been able to challenge a book in a library and it starts with having a conversation with a librarian and that's the piece we're not seeing and we're also not seeing them following procedure and filling out the paperwork so that we can have a community conversation because the law says that it needs to be the prevailing standards of the community as a whole and that's mm -hmm. why we have that piece to challenge at the local level because every community is different so the the misnomer that parents haven't had rights or that uh, schools have not been transparent is completely false and I think that's uh, you know us at fame I think that's where we've been so frustrated that this is being projected across the state because it's just simply not true and just for our listeners, FAME is the Florida Association for Media and Education. Uh, Michelle, what about the work group that's developing the online training? What can you tell us about who's on it and the role of your association's members in that group? 
Sure, absolutely. The work group was put in place to create a training for um, library media specialists across the state under House Bill 1467. And it's mostly library supervisors from across the state. They represent Marion County, Okaloosa, Collier, Osceola, Manatee, Volusia, Santa Rosa, and St. John's. And then there's also the addition of four parents on the work group who um, represent parent concerns and groups across mm -hmm. the state. And they're from Brevard, St. John's, Lee, and Indian River. Um, and that training is to develop, um, basically to teach library media specialists about collection development. And it's supposed to be ready by January 1st of 2023. Mm -hmm. um, most of the media specialists, well, all of the media specialists in the state of Florida, in order to select books, do have to be certified in the state of Florida, and the majority of them do have master's degrees in library science. So this is something they're familiar with already. This is just mm -hmm. a hoop that the um, legislator has put in that they have to be trained through this uh, virtual online training, and uh, our group has been tasked with creating that training for the state. We're speaking with Michelle Jarrett. She's the president of the Florida Association for Media and Education, talking around the notion of restricting library materials in schools. We did reach out to the Florida Department of Education for comment. Here is what they said. Quote, the state of Florida does not ban books. In fact, many of the books that the media and teachers unions claim to be banned are actually on recommended reading lists. Parents have the right to raise their children as they best see fit. We do not understand why anyone would take a position against parents making decisions regarding their child's education, health and upbringing. And it's unfortunate that media activists and those with a political agenda have made protecting parental rights and education a controversial topic. That's the statement from the state. Let's hear from Florida. Residents out there, 305-995-1800. Greg on the line in Port St. Lucie. Hello, Greg. Go ahead. Hello. Thank you. Um, what this is leveled down to is opinions. Um, everybody has their own opinion about what is proper, uh, what is good for any person to absorb, to read. Um, those opinions come from all over the spectrum. Religion, government. Nobody's opinion is right for everybody. Everybody should have access to anything in a library that can stimulate them or educate them, you know? We, you, you can't go by one person's opinion. And I thank you. Well, thanks for sharing yours, Greg. Lots of tweets. Here's one from Terry. I'm a longtime teacher and counselor. I've never heard of any student being harmed by reading a book, but I have hundreds who benefited from reading. Uh, here's another tweet. Uh, this is all paving the way to usher in fascism. Book banning is part of that he says, and you are listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Let's welcome Jonathan Friedman, Director of the Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, great to be here. 
So, you know, as you know, at PEN America, where you monitor this coast to coast, Florida isn't the only state where there have been attempts to ban books in schools. What stands out when you compare Florida to other states? What's the picture look like for you? Florida is uh, one of the states that is, you know, pioneering, leading uh, uh, at the leading edge of trying to um, introduce, you know, numerous forms of um, efforts to censor teachers and prevent them from doing their work, to remove books from libraries, sometimes in both uh, overt ways, but also in more subtle ways. And I think what we have to do is take a frank look at the kinds of provisions that are being proposed or now being passed uh, with regard to how we operate schools. You know, there these are these are not new issues. People disagree about what should be taught in schools, but they are public schools and public schools have um, have an obligation to serve a broad, diverse public. They have an obligation to um, you know, introduce students to the wider world, to encourage open inquiry, to, you know, allow teachers to respond to questions that students have. And what's so alarming about what's happening in Florida is, you know, there have always been curricular standards. There have always been policies in place, you know, ways to challenge uh, books in libraries and a lot. And, you know, those standards can change and teachers can be trained and, you know, instructed in new ways. That is not the approach that's being taken across Florida in, in numerous bills now, laws and now rules passed by the Board of Ed recently. Um, the attitude is one of if a teacher steps out of line in any way at all, they should remove, you know, never be allowed to teach whatsoever. And that's a terrifying climate in which to do your job, especially when the rules themselves are extremely vague. Um, this is, you know, one of the, the ways that a, a teacher could be uh, could lose their license now. There's a set of prohibited concepts in classrooms. And the wording says that if a teacher espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels students to believe in those uh, uh, prohibited ideas. And the thing is, none of that is defined. There's no uh, clarity around what the burden of proof is uh, for, for any of those. Where is the line between espouse, advance, promote and teach. I mean, it certainly just sounds like even teaching itself, uh, educating um, is, is on the table. And the thing is, these situations can so clearly be ambiguous. People can disagree about them. But nonetheless, it is tilting the table in favor of anybody bringing any kind of complaint. And then, of course, teachers self-censoring uh, preemptively. And so, um, you know, I think this is really quite dangerous when we think about the role of education and public education in our society. Now, you at PEN America support free expression, particularly literary expression. But there are other free speech concerns in other parts of Florida. For example, the University of Florida has banned indoor protests after students protested recently over U.S. Senator Ben Sasse's candidacy to be president at UF in Gainesville. Uh, the faculty senate on, uh, on the UF campus has also put together a no confidence vote in the process saying that it wasn't open and transparent. So how does that track with your concerns about freedom of expression here in the Sunshine State? You know, I think it's important for people to realize that there is a variety of ways in which freedom of expression is threatened. And in that hierarchy, the most alarming concerns come from efforts to weaponize the machinery of government, which is by far the most powerful tool 
uh, in engaging in suppression. And that's why book bans in schools and other public institutions and libraries are so concerning. And that's why uh, some of the recent developments concerning universities in Florida are so concerning. You know, protest is a form of freedom of expression, um, just like, you know, many others. It's a way that people get together and voice, um, you know, dissent, opinion, engage in argument. And what's what's concerning here at the university is you have a situation where it, it's it's clear that that whoever was protesting recently indoors uh, went too far. People couldn't hear Ben Sass. You know, there was no opportunity for engagement whatsoever. So the, we you know, the university could have some response to that specific incident. But then to draw from that and say, you know, as a result of that, we're going to institute a new rule for everyone, a kind of collective punishment, a blanket ban on protesting indoors across the board. Um, you know, it's concerning and it's concerning because concerning. it's so clearly, well, it, it, you see, it, you see that as overreach. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, but I want to thank our guests on this topic. Michelle Jarrett, the president of FAME, the Florida Association for Media and Education, and Jonathan Friedman, director of the Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America. Thank you both uh, so much for joining the show today. We appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you. having up next, me. Up next, SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, the most powerful rocket in operation, is set to fly once more. That's when the Florida Roundup continues from Florida Public Radio. Business and nonprofit leaders, you can learn to turn challenges into opportunities, think strategically, and take your organization to the next level through the Jim Moran Institute's no cost small business or nonprofit executive programs. Learn more at jmi.fsu.edu. There's never been a more vital moment to protect and support local and national journalism from WLRN and NPR. As disinformation continues to seep into every realm of society, the need to confront false narratives with trusted factual reporting has never been greater. WLRN is an antidote to the proliferation of disinformation and the erosion of trust in media. Your support keeps independent journalism strong. Please donate at WLRN.org. Science Friday is sponsored by the Museum of Discovery and Science in Fort Lauderdale. Families and bookworms can step into the pages of beloved author and illustrator Eric Carle's very series in Maud's new exhibit, Exhibit Entry Fee with Admission. More at MODS.org. Miss that Saturday dance. I heard they crowded. This is Ted Grossman for Night Train. Sunday night, we're going to honor Cleo Lane, whose birthday is next week. We'll hear her in one of her Carnegie Hall concerts, A Visit in 1979, and Johnny Dankworth and his quintet, Baxter. The entire show will be heard on Night Train, Sunday at 8 p.m. on WLRN. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for being with us this Friday. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. It's the world's most powerful rocket, and next week it's set to fly for the first time in three years. The Falcon Heavy, essentially three SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets strapped together, produces more than 5 million pounds of thrust on liftoff. Space buffs are eagerly awaiting the launch, which will send multiple U.S. Space Force satellites into orbit. 
Now, Falcon Heavy famously launched a Tesla into orbit on its first test flight back in 2018. The mighty rocket was supposed to have multiple launches, but this will be just the fourth mission for the SpaceX vehicle. We're talking space on the show now here on the Florida Roundup. 305-995-1800. Tweet us your space questions at Florida Roundup as we welcome WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Melissa. Happy to be here. You know, Elon Musk is getting a lot of attention this week for something else, by the way, <laughs> buying <true>. Twitter, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is another story. But let's talk about this rocket launch. Uh, two classified satellites going up for the U.S. military. So there's some secrecy. SpaceX completed a static fire test Thursday, and they say they're on track to launch next Tuesday, November 1st. What do you know about the mission? I know about as much as you do, Melissa. Uh, this is a super secret launch. Um, we know that this is a launch for the Space Force. It'll be carrying two satellites, what they're going to be doing or where they're going. We, we don't know that. Uh, but we know that this is the first of many launches of the Falcon Heavy for the Space Force. The, the most recent uh, Falcon Heavy launch it launched about 25 tinier or smaller satellites uh, into orbit for the Space Force. And it was kind of like a proving ground. Um, with that launch, the Space Force has certified Falcon Heavy to carry its most precious uh, spy satellites into space. Uh, and that's what's going to be launching next week. This will be the first one uh, for the Space Force. And I think there's about three more on, on the docket uh, coming up. Wow. So talk us through the launch. What's it like seeing one of these blast off? What can spectators look forward to? It's absolutely incredible to see a Falcon Heavy launch. As, as Matt mentioned at the start, it, it's essentially one Falcon 9 rocket with two more Falcon 9 rockets strapped to it. So uh, there's nine engines on a Falcon 9 rocket. Uh, so that makes 27 engines all lighting simultaneously. Um, if anybody has seen a Falcon 9 launch, there have been plenty of them over the past few years. You know, you get that crackling of the air. Um, you see this bright light. Well, it's just a, you know, a multiple of three uh, when a Falcon 9 launches. It's, it's super loud. It's super bright. It's, it's just awesome. And what's really cool about the Falcon 9 is, is they, or the Falcon Heavy, is SpaceX recovers the boosters. In this case, they're only recovering the two side boosters they land back at Cape Canaveral. So as they slow down, they break that sound barrier and you hear these multiple sonic booms from these two rockets as they come falling out of the sky and land uh, really incredibly uh, just a few miles from the launch pad. It's, it's an incredible sight to see. I know you love it and you do such great reporting on the space program. Now this is the most powerful rocket out there right now. It can lift about two times the payload of ULA's Delta Four Heavy. I'm uh, Matthew Petty put in all the space terminology for me. I hope I'm pronouncing, saying all this right. Wonderful. Uh, what, all right. Thank you, Matthew Petty. What kind of demand is there for a rocket this size, Brendan? I know we, when we think of space, right, we think of, you know, things are getting smaller and lighter. Um, you think of, you know, SpaceX's Starlink satellites. You're looking at, you know, all these different communication satellites are getting smaller. But there is still a demand for. Uh, something that can bring something very heavy into space and also something that can bring something very high. Uh, usually Falcon Heavy goes to a geostationary orbit, which is much higher than, than low Earth orbit. So there is demand. There's not a lot of commercial demand for heavy lift anymore, 
but things like uh, the James Webb Space Telescope that launched on a on a heavy lift rocket. Um, there's a mission to a, an asteroid called Psyche. It's this heavy metal asteroid that NASA is really excited to explore. That's going to be launching on a Falcon Heavy as well because it needs that extra oomph to get it to where it needs to go. So there is demand for this, um, and there will be more demand when more of these uh, heavy lifts come on. But it's more for the uh, the government or or science agencies that are really using these these big heavy rockets. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We're talking space with WMFE's Brandon Byrne, talking about the upcoming Falcon Heavy launch. First time in more than three years that this beast will lift off from the Space Coast. Brandon, why the three-year gap? I mean, the last time this thing launched was back in summer 2019, pre-pandemic, if people remember those days. Yeah, and, and a lot of times when we talk about delays in, in space flight, it's usually the rocket. There's an issue with the rocket. Um, but in, in the case of Falcon Heavy, most of these delays have been because of the payloads. Um, so with, with the payload that's launching next week, we don't know why, um, but there was a problem processing this payload, getting it ready to be attached to the, to the rocket and, and launched into space. So that kind of slowed this down. Um, that Psyche mission that I mentioned, uh, the NASA mission that's going to that, that heavy metal asteroid, there was a software issue. So that delayed a software issue on the, on the uh, spacecraft, not, not the Falcon Heavy. So that delayed it as well. So there's just, there's not too much on the docket. As I mentioned, there's, there's not a lot of usage for, for heavy lift at the moment. Uh, and then issues with the payload have, have caused the delay. Falcon Heavy has been ready to fly for <laughs> since mm -hmm. 2019. Right. Getting some tweets coming in here. Uh, one listener asked, how does it compare to the Starship and Super Heavy, and when might we see a Starship launch in Florida? On that note, Brendan, there are those couple of other enormously powerful rockets waiting in the wings. We've got this SLS and then SpaceX's Starship, which our listener mentioned. What can you tell us about those two programs, and when can space enthusiasts in Central Florida expect to see those in action? Well, I'll start with I'll start with uh, SLS, the Space Launch System. This is a NASA rocket. Um, this is this is the workhorse for NASA's new moon program called Artemis, which is named after the twin of Apollo. Um, it's supposed to send astronauts to the moon, you know, this decade. Um, there were some issues launching that one. It's a new vehicle, so um, NASA is targeting a launch November 14th, a launch attempt November 14th mm. in the middle of the night uh, from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, Starship. Uh, is getting ready for its first orbital flight from Boca Chica, Texas. This is SpaceX's new heavy lift rocket that's also going to be helping with Artemis. It will be the lander uh, for NASA astronauts, at least for the first few missions. Uh, so we're expecting an orbital flight in the next few months of that one. So we've got a lot of heavy lift rockets coming on the market huh. very, very soon. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, let's go to Tony in Deerfield on the line. He's got a question. Hi, Tony. Go ahead. Hey, thank you. I have uh, two questions, basically. The first one is, is is this the launch going to take from uh, Patrick's Air Force Base, since it is a uh, secret launch? And the second one is, is how does the Falcon Heavy compare to the most powerful Apollo uh, engines um, in terms of thrust and, and power? Thanks for that, Tony. Brendan Byrne, what about that? That is a good question. Uh, so this this will be to answer the first question. This will be from uh, the Kennedy Space Center, uh, is where it's launching from. Um, despite it being a, a, a Space Force launch, um, SpaceX is using their facility that they have at the Kennedy Space Center side of things to launch this. As 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 how it compares to Saturn Five, that is a very good question. I think it's something like five million pounds of thrust at liftoff, and I cannot recall off the top of my head what Saturn Five was, but. 
Saturn V is still is still the, the the beast when it comes to heavy lifts here, but Artemis is going to come very very close the SLS rocket to to Saturn V. I think it's 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 very close in, in thrust, but um, hmm. they're big they're big heavy and loud and they're a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about watching a space shot? You know, I I think Falcon Heavy is is unique in the sense that you can see two of these boosters. I mean, they're you know hundreds of you know almost two hundred feet tall. A piece of a rocket part just fall out of the sky and and right near where you are it's 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 baffling to see it and then you see it land um but i think the cool thing is is how many people come out to these things like we've we've had falcon 9 launches with just you know the nine engines pretty much consistently at least once a week and every time you go out to the space coast there's more people coming out there and watching these things and there's just the excitement around a rocket launch you know, we thought that it, it might, you know, die down a little bit because it's so frequent, but it really hasn't. People are just fascinated by this stuff, and it's something to rally around and, you know, really root for and, and you know, watch take off. There's there's nothing like it. Super cool. Yeah, and, you know, Matthew, it's fun, too. Uh, even if you live far away from the Kennedy Space Center, you can still go outside, look up in many parts of the state and see yeah. the rocket going up. That's right. I mean, depending on the weather, Michelle, sometimes uh, you will see, Melissa rather, sometimes you'll see these rockets all the way up into, you know, like the DC area, right? I mean, the, 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 um, it just kind of depends on the atmospheric conditions. But you can see those rockets from a, a good long distance, right, Brendan? You can, yeah. And it, it depends on the trajectory, right? Um, some of them, you know, like uh, the International Space Station launches, they'll, they'll head up the coast. Uh, so you can see them, you know, up north up the coast, you can see them up to DC. Uh, but there's also some some other trajectories that kind of take it south and dogleg it around uh, Cuba, where people in South Florida are starting to see these launches. And then we're also seeing returns. Uh, the the past uh, crew return on a, a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule, NASA shared its trajectory, and it came across the state. So anywhere in the state, you could look up and you could see this capsule punching through the atmosphere. You could see this kind of plasma trail behind it. Uh, as these four astronauts returned from space. So, yeah, even if you're not in in uh, in in the space coast, you you can see this and especially with when Artemis does launch, you should be able to mm -hmm. see that from pretty much anywhere on, on the eastern coast of Florida. Exciting times for space buffs and basically anybody with an interest in what's going on on the space coast. Brendan Byrne is WMFE space reporter. Thank you so much. Anytime. Happy to be here. Thanks, Brendan. The Florida Roundup produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Toy are producers with production assistance this week from Leslie Ovalle Atkinson. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations is Peter Mertz. Technical Direction from Richard Ives. Engineering Help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Isabella De Silva and Gio Garvin. Amy Sanchez answers the phones. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back next Friday. Make it a great weekend. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. This is 91.3 WLRN in HD1, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, 91.5 WKWM in HD1, Marathon, Key West, 105.5 WOLL HD2, Hope Sound, and 101.9 NPR for the Palm Beaches.
We're funded by members and by Rider, a third-party logistics provider, offering a portfolio of solutions that includes warehousing and distribution management, transportation logistics, e-commerce fulfillment, and last-mile delivery. More information at Rider.com. We're funded by WLRN members and by Carol and Ira Price of Legal Title Services. WLRN members supporting the statewide edition of Florida Roundup. Ira is from Jacksonville, but South Florida is now their home. Learn more at floridatitleservices.com. Miami-Dade County Public Schools is holding evening town halls on the state of the schools and the renewal of the referendum to increase teacher salaries and school security. You can find an evening town hall near you at secureourfuture.dadeschools.net. The Symphonia, South Florida's premier chamber orchestra, ignites its new season Sunday, November 13th at 3 with Fire, the debut of Inspired Naturally, the first of four live concerts inspired by nature's elements with fiery works from Peck, Haydn, and Mozart, led by Cuban-born music phenom Andres Cardenas, solo violinist and conductor. Season and individual tickets at thesymphonia.org. Sponsored in part by the Board of County Commissioners, the Tourist Development Council, and the Cultural Council for Palm Beach County.